I like badges. I often think, and again, I want to be clear, this is a reductio. It's meant to take, it's meant to push you on your position. I, I, I sometimes like to think, what if I was a badger born in a human body? Welcome to Nature Magic. Today I'm talking to Professor Martin Bonzel. Martin taught philosophy at Rutgers University in New Jersey for 40 years. Much of his work has revolved around the nature of scientific knowledge. And in his new book, Thinking While Walking, Reflections on the Pacific Quest Trail, he delves into difficult topics such as these. Millions of trees along the trail have been destroyed by beetles. If we have a duty of respect to nature, why does that respect not extend to the beetles? We have rights and perhaps other animals do as well, but does nature itself have rights? If not, how do we ground our duty to respect it? We have inherited a distinction between the natural and the man-made. How does that affect how we think about nature and our relationship to it? It was a lot of fun discussing nature and ethics with Martin, and I'm sure you will enjoy trying to figure out these mind riddles that will inhabit your thinking for days after the conversation. So welcome to Nature Magic, and hi, Martin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi. Uh, I had the pleasure of reading your book and I, we're going to talk all about it. So where are you talking to us from today? I'm in La Jolla in, in Southern California. I'm about 20 miles from the Mexican border. And I, I, I'm a retired professor of philosophy. My wife is a historian here at the University of California. So we're really going to dive into the philosophical connection with nature and man. You were talking earlier about your garden and your collection of succulents. So that just gives me a little idea of where you're living. It must be a deserty area. Am I correct? Yes, actually, uh, most of the plants in my garden and in people's gardens around here are not native. The cacti come from Mexico and the succulents tend to come from uh, Africa, especially from Madagascar. Uh, if we didn't import stuff, uh, most of what you'd see around here would be coyote brush most of the year round. It only rains here uh, for about two weeks in um, December. We get about eight inches of rain a year. Spring starts in January, and that's unwatered areas are green for, a, for about six weeks, and then they turn brown. Oh, fascinating. So um, coyote brush sounds like a bit of a shrubby plant. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you'd see if you if you if you pull up any picture of the West Coast, you know, desert and stuff, you'll see coyote brush. Unless yeah. we pull up a street view of your garden, which is obviously full of succulents. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to go on to your book, really, which is called Thinking While Walking. And it's musings on nature while you were walking the Pacific Crest Trail. So could you explain to the listeners what the Pacific Crest Trail is, first of all? Sure. The Pacific Crest Trail is a, a continuing trail, continuous trail of 2,650 miles that runs from the Mexican border, about 50 miles from where I live, up to the Canadian border, runs through California, uh, Oregon and Washington, all the way up to the border. And I should say, I didn't walk the whole trail. I actually went to different sections and spent a day or so 
starting at a trailhead somewhere along the way thinking and then I'd go home and then I'd go further up the trail. It takes about four months to do the trail on a continuous walk and um, it's not something I would be up for. Yeah, I looked at I looked at Google Maps and saw where it was that yeah, it's quite a long trail. Um, you were born in Putney, I think. I was born, I was born in London. Yeah. Born in London. And when did you start thinking about nature? You know, I did a PhD in philosophy in the 1970s, and I'm a philosopher of science by by training. Um, but in about uh, 2008, I started thinking about climate change. Uh, and my way into thinking about nature was through climate change. Uh, I had been hesitant to have children because of the threat of nuclear destruction. And then I sort of relaxed after the threat of global nuclear exchanges seemed to diminish and had children. And then suddenly I started worrying about climate change. Climate change doesn't really represent a threat to my children, but certainly to my great, great, great grandchildren, if there are any, and who, know, who knows if they will. I started thinking a lot about climate change, wrote a book on philosophy and climate change, and then started thinking more generally about issues of nature, some of which come out of thinking about climate change, some of which come from, from different kinds of angles that I started thinking about. Each topic is drilled into to the core. And so we've, we've got the nature of litter, the invention of the natural, on the illusion of living the simple life, trying to prevent change in nature. Um, what was your favorite chapter to write about? Or what do you think is the most satisfying chapter that you wrote? I think chapter nine philosophically is the most challenge, was the most challenging chapter for me. Um, you know, I, I, I came to this book and came to these walks with a, a, a kind of ethical obsession, which is how can I generate a moral duty to nature if, number one, I'm an atheist, which I, ha which I am, so I can't rely on God, and two, if I have a pretty strict requirement for what it is to have moral standing. What I mean by moral standing is that you are a thing that has moral rights that people have moral duties to. So chairs, tables, and stones don't have that. Uh, other human beings do, and depending on your views, some animals do, and maybe lots of animals do. But it's very hard, I think, to generate an argument that nature is a rights bearer, that we have duties of nature, unless you go into a what to me is a, a rather mysterious kind of doctrine, a kind of Gaia doctrine, where you think the whole of the earth is a living organism, which I don't think is a defensible solution. So I wanted an argument about, do we have a duty of nature constrained in that way? And I, I, in the course of that chapter, I come to the conclusion that this is really a lost cause, but I had an epiphany a genuine epiphany on, on, on this walk. It's, it takes place in, in the Northern Cascades in the state of Washington, which is one of the most beautiful, beautiful areas I've, I've ever walked in. Um, and I was 
moved to tears when I was walking sections of that, just by the, the beauty of it. And in association with those, that, 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 those tears, I, I, I've, I experienced awe and humility. And I suddenly stopped and I thought, you know, why am I looking for an argument here? Simply being this kind of nature is evoking a sense of humility and a sense of respect for my surroundings without the need of an argument. It's not a great, it's not a great chapter to push the role of philosophical analysis because in a way it's an anti-philosophical argument. It says, think less and feel more and you'll be a better person. Well, that's exactly and, and what, I I was, what I was getting to because I wanted to ask, did you actually manage to turn your brain off during the walks and, and thinking and feeling? And obviously you, you really believed by the end of the book that being in nature and just being there and feeling it was a stronger argument than <laughs> philosophizing about it. Well, I don't think it's an argument. I think it gets you to the conclusion that you might want the argument to get to. I think there's a middle ground between turning off your brain and keeping your brain on. And it derives from actually the experience of strolling as opposed to hiking. Hiking is a, a, a very demanding kind of enterprise. Um, you have to keep a certain rhythm. You have to watch out here in the Southern part of California for rattlesnakes or, or roots that are sticking out of the ground that you might trip on. Strolling is a much more relaxed kind of enterprise. And I have actually a, a quote at the beginning of the book from Jean-Jacques Rousseau about his strolls or his walks in Paris in the, in the 18th century. And he says, you know, when I stroll, I find my mind entirely free and suffer my ideas to follow their bent without resistance or control. And I think there is a way of thinking that's different from you know, sitting at your desk trying to come up with a rigorous argument, which is to let your mind wander, but posing a problem to yourself. And in this case, I mean, the charm of it was, you know, I'd go to a trailhead and have, I'd have a little notebook with me and I'd walk and simply see what there was in the environment that would trigger a thought. And I should say to your listeners, you know, it's not what you'd always think. It's not the purity of nature, because one of the things I write about in the book is how we really organize nature. We curate nature to have the natural, but it's actually quite difficult to get away from intrusions so that, you know, at the beginning, when you, when you start off at the Mexican border, there are power lines. In the Mojave Desert, there are one of the largest solar farms one of the largest wind farms, an, an, an enormous man-made, human-made uh, water transportation system that takes water to LA. So you're never fully aware, fully in nature in some natural sense in a, a lot of the time. And that starts me thinking about our relationship to nature and what it means to be in nature. Yes, you did have a thought about the beetles eating the trees. And I can't remember the name of the beetles, but, you know, animal rights. Uh, do we respect the beetles' right to survive and eat the trees? Or do we look after the trees? Or is it our right to do any of those things? Chapter nine, really, I think the question of how do we have respect for nature or should we have respect for nature or why should we? was answered by just being in nature and experiencing the awe 
and the humility that you felt. Yes, although it's it's not necessarily as straightforward as it might seem because um, when you are in the beauty of the Northern Cascades in Washington, it's easy to be moved. If you're walking through a, a dead forest eaten by the beetles or looking at a bunch of cockroaches, you're more likely to react with disgust than awe. And part of, as you suggest, part of what I, what I take up in the book in, in another chapter is the idea that we privilege certain kinds of species over others. And we often do this in a high-minded way instead of facing up to the fact that this is self-interest. I think if we could, we'd be happy to, as it were, get rid of the cockroaches and the beetles and just stay with the, you know, the badgers and the, and the hedgehogs, what we find cute as opposed to what we find disgusting. But I'm interested in the book as to whether, why we pick and choose and whether we should pick and choose without again giving rights too promiscuously. I mean, I do have a, what philosophers call a reductio ad absurdum in the book, which I say, if you think every, thing, every living thing has rights, then we better defend the rights of the COVID virus, of the SARS virus, because, you know, or the back, if you think, if you think viruses are not alive, then, then bacteria. And, and obviously I don't actually think bacteria have rights, but I want someone, I want the reader to push back and tell me why do some things have rights and other things not? Yeah, and actually perhaps they all should have rights because um, we know that life is an ecosystem. Um, you remove one element of it, you don't know what damage you're doing to the rest of the ecosystem. We, we need the bacteria. I'm not sure if we need the virus, but maybe there's a point for it. I mean, one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a philosopher, uh, so I'm not the right person to ask her, but I, I do have an opinion on it from having studied stuff. It depends on a number of things. If you freeze technology where it is today, the carrying capacity of the world is about 3.8 billion people. We're currently at 7.8 billion, heading towards between 10 and 15 billion people, depending on the fertility rate, particularly in Africa, over the next century. Now, if you want to get off the treadmill of pushing more and more demands for more and more technology, if you want to live a simpler life, then you have to reconcile yourself to a lower population, global global population. And I think there is a deep question of both social policy and ethics about whether or how one could go from 7.8 billion to 3.8 billion. If I ruled the world and, you know, if philosophers ruled the world, I'd, I'd say for one generation, every person gets a right to half a child. They can combine that half with someone else to have a right to one child. And then you're at 3.8 billion within one generation. And then from then on, everyone can have two children. But I don't rule the world, so. No, I, don't know. I, don't I know, know it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky question. And I just wonder, perhaps there is enough for the 7 billion mm -hmm. as well, if we just use our resources better. And it's a, this is all about ethics and you know who has too much and who has too little, and what are we doing with our foodstuffs and <laughs> so well, many questions. Let me push back against that with the following comment. 
17% uh, uh, of the world's population, and that includes you and me, consume 70% of the world's energy. Of the 7.8 billion, I think it's about 1.3 billion. Call us the rich, call the rest the poor. Now, as with energy, so with food, so with almost everything else. But the problem here is this is a problem of numbers. Even if we say, okay, we're going to share equally, by the time you share our energy, our food, our wealth with the other 83% of the world, everyone gets more than they have if they're in the poor section of the world, but they still get very little. I mean, the example I like to use is here in the, in the United States, we're the energy pigs of the world. And if you look at the Danes, of course, the Danes are the model people of the world, along with the New Zealanders, as it were, the model people of the Danes. They live on a modest budget of 1,300, uh, it's an oil equivalent, KGOE. Uh, I live on, in the United States, we're on 2,700. In the Congo, it's 300. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a reasonable expectation that they should live like the Danes. People want a washing machine, a small house, a small refrigerator. But by the time you give everyone that amount of energy, uh, there's not enough energy to go around based on our current portfolio, especially yeah. renewable energy. Yeah, well, thank you very much for explaining that. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but although the Danes might be good with their energy, they do have 13 million pigs in the country. Um, so the, the Americans, you, you call them energy pigs or, or the Western world, but the Danes are eating too much bacon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. So um, we, we have a few questions and you said you were just going to hit me with the answers. So what are your what's your favorite plant or animal? Have you something in particular you'd like to talk about? Perhaps it's something that you saw on your walk on the trail. Well, I like badgers. I often think, and again, I want to be clear, this is a reductio. It's meant to take, it's meant to push you on your position. I, I, I sometimes like to think, what if I was a badger born in a human body? What, 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 would, it, what, would, it, what would it be to be a badger in a human body? And can I become a badger? And part of that is a, an introduction to a philosophical theme of, can we decide what we are? Do we have full individual discretion without anyone else to say what they are, what, what we are? Um, and I think this raises all kinds of social and, social and political questions, um, that most of which are controversial, but I think they're useful in the sense that they reflect my philosophical credo, which I take from Bertrand Russell, which is that the goal of philosophy is the the substitution of articulate hesitation for inarticulate certainty. So much of what we take in our public discourse begins with assumptions that we take to be self-evident. And the philosophical role that I have and other philosophers have is to push against those assumptions and ask if it's so obvious that, um, that they can be relied on without examination. Why, oh, can't brilliant. I, why can't I say I'm a badger? Well, well there's, there's one reason, uh, Martin, that you, maybe you can't say you're a badger, even though I absolutely love um, the thought that you are a badger. You don't really have fur, as far as I can see, because we are on a video call. Um, <laughs> you're not living in a den. 
And um, yes, yeah, so your outer characteristics don't particularly look uh, like- I'm a badger trapped in a human body. I okay. feel my badgerism every day and I regret being in a human body. I absolutely love badgers. We caught a badger on our trail cam um, just last week and he was mooching around in the fairy woodland, trotting around there and we absolutely love badgers. So we've 50 acres here and they're very, very safe on the farm. Unfortunately, yeah. in Ireland, I'm not sure about America, but they threat, well, they're threatened by farmers who think they carry TB to the cattle. So they were culling badgers and, you know, they're not particularly popular with farmers, which is um, heartbreaking. They're now doing some vaccination programs. But in this little 50 acres, if they don't wander out, they're safe. So if you become a badger, come here. Oh. <laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> Very good. So one of the questions, do you feel spiritually connected to nature or a spiritual experience or a profound experience? I know you said you're an atheist. Uh, perhaps it's the epiphany you had at the falls, but is there, are there any other moments in your life where nature really shook you to the core? I want to say, first of all, I'm an analytic, <clears throat> I'm an analytic philosopher. Uh, most philosophers in 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 the UK and Ireland and Australia and Canada and the United States are analytic philosophers as opposed to what are known as continental philosophers. And so I would say I'm as, as far away from the spiritual as you can, as you can get. And yet I am sometimes moved by nature. I, I, I went to Kauai, which is um, the wildest of the Hawaiian islands. And if your listeners have never been there, I would just recommend it. It's, it's just awe and I mean, it's just overwhelming. It's just overwhelming in its beauty. And when you realize that all of that nature came by sea current or by birds initially, because when the island was created, it was a volcanic eruption and was totally barren. And now it's just astonishingly lush. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about Kauai, just as an aside, is that when settlers came, white settlers came, they, they brought um, chickens with them. And the chickens have no predators on Kauai. So everywhere you go, there are just thousands of thousands of wild chickens walking around. You get off the plane, you go into the parking lot to get a car, and it's full of chickens. It's hilarious. It's just, it's just hilarious. And the other thing I want to say that moves me, which I think goes to the heart of, I think, the degree to which our relationship to nature is very constructed and cultivated, is that I grew up in London and I used to go to the Lake District in the 1950s to spend my summers there. And the kind of look of the Lake District, those low mountains that are, have no trees on them, became a kind of paradigm of the nature, the nature and the natural to me. And it came as a shock to me in reading this book to learn how much the Lake District was constructed to give the newly emerging middle class the experience of the natural in the response to the Industrial Revolution in England in the late 18th, early 19th century. And how even today, efforts are made to prevent it going back to its natural condition. So trees are cut down. You'd have an occasional clump of trees, 
but the barrenness that was actually created by overgrazing by cattle and, and particularly sheep gives you that look that we think of England, particularly in the South, for example, the Downs. And yet that has somehow imprinted on me that when I see that, for example, driving from Santa Cruz to San Francisco, I think, oh my God, this is so gorgeous. And it's all man-made. <laughs> yeah, I actually have become in my head when I see the mountains and Connemara and the Boron is different because it's a very special landscape, but I do think desert now when I see Scotland, Connemara, uh, Lake District, because I know what the sheep have done and I'm hoping if we can take some of them off, the trees will come back. But thank you so much for that lovely description of Kauai. Um, so we're back really to what do you think people can do to support nature? If there's one thing you could recommend that your everyday person could do, what would you suggest? I, I want to say there's very little you can do as an individual that makes a difference. What you can do that's much more important is pressure your governments. Because the problem we have is that politicians respond to the short-term horizon of the electorate. They respond to getting elected and in the next election and getting elected as many times as possible over their career, which may be 10 or 20 years. But as all your listeners know, the problem of climate is that it's future generations that will bear the, co bear, bear the cost. And we are being asked to make sacrifices when climate is only minimally affecting us. And I say that seriously. I know that we have forest fires here and floods and tornadoes, but it's relatively minimal relative to what future generations will suffer. So this dislocation between us having to bear the costs with no benefit to us means that politicians are very loath to do it. Is nothing more important than banding together to tell politicians, we will only support you if you take climate action, even if it's against our short-term interests. It's much more important than, you know, trading your, your Volvo for a bicycle or, you know, paying some ridiculously small amount of money when you fly somewhere for, as, a, as a carbon offset, which is mainly bullshit in terms of mm -hmm. the transaction. Yeah, so I and, and I think there's a danger, Mary, because I think if you do something individual, you feel good. You feel like I'm helping save the planet. And that actually undermines the energy, which I would hope you would put into saying to your politicians, do something serious. And and, you know, serious involves some very difficult and painful choices. We need a tax on carbon. More than anything else in the world, we need a tax on carbon to reflect the true cost of carbon. Mm -hmm. I mean, I th do you believe that it's human nature not to do anything until we hit rock bottom? Um, I'm not sure about that. When I wrote my book on philosophy and climate change, I said the problem is that we may not experience the effects of climate change soon enough, and it may not be global enough for us to be impelled to act. Well, it turns out that we're wrong. I think we are feeling it globally and we are feeling it enough that it is in fact impelling people to act, maybe impelling people to act if, if politicians are pressured to do it. So, but I think there's enough of a crisis now that we can act. However, there is another problem, which I, I think we should be honest about. Only 20% 
of our current energy portfolio globally is non-fossil fuels, and that includes nuclear energy. And energy demand is growing as the developing world legitimately wants more energy. And it's going to be almost impossible to make a transition to a fossil-free energy portfolio um, in any time shorter than 50 to 75 years. Yeah, it's a big problem. If you had a magic wand, what would you do for the planet right now? Well, if I had a magic wand, I would um, harness the power of the sun for electricity because it takes, I think, uh, about two days worth of the sun's energy if you captured it all to, to fuel all of our energy needs for a year. Oh, that's, a, that's a beautiful so wish. That, that's the most effective magical, magical wand. Actually harnessing it, you know, covering the whole of the Sahara Desert with solar panels and then building the power transmission lines to send it all of the places we want is again going to take 50 to 75 years. Uh, the Canadian author, Victor Smeal, writes wonderful books about the real timeline of energy transitions. The energy transition from wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to gas, all took 50 to 75 years. And there's no reason to think that the transition from fossil fuels to fossil free fuels is going to be accomplished in much shorter time than that. Well, that's very interesting. So let's hope we can shrink that transition time. And yeah. I absolutely love your wish to harness the sun um, and very practical. You were talking about that book. Do you have any other inspiring books that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Well, even though I think Al Gore is highly irresponsible in encouraging magical thinking about how easy it is to make a transition to fossil free fuel, he said in 2008, if we're only willing to do it, we could do it in 10 years. I do think his book on climate, and the, I forget the title, is, is a very important book. It, it got me thinking seriously about climate. So I encourage anyone else, I, I encourage, if you haven't read it, I encourage it. I still think it's the best book to push you to thinking hard about, hard about climate. Uh, um, and, and, you know, the rest of the books that inspire me are philosophical books that are probably far too esoteric for your readers and less. Uh, well, no, go on, set shout because you don't know who's listening. <laughs> They're really interested in philosophy. Yeah. Well, I, I think in the 20th century, the most um, inspiring book is John Rawls's book, A Theory of Justice, which really shook us free from thinking about the kind of consequentialism or utilitarianism of John Stuart Mill to thinking more in the tradition of individual rights and the importance of the importance of individual rights. And I think that's a, a tremendously important book. And I think in the area I work in, in the area of, of, of philosophy, I think uh, by the American philosopher Saul Kripke, uh, a book called Naming and Necessity is probably the most important book in metaphysics in the 20th century because he really introduced us Again, not to beat up on the United Kingdom, I just to criticize Mill. <laughs> he really beat up on David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, in encouraging us to think coherently about natural laws, about laws of nature, 
as not just describing what is the case, but what can and cannot be the case. The idea that laws of nature place constraints on possibility. They don't, just don't describe what is the case, but they allow us to think about what could be the case and could not be the case. So those are a couple of books that I think anyone interested in philosophy would be well advised to read. Oh, that's great. I'm going to put them in the show notes. And th thank you so much for coming on the show. I was scrabbling to catch up with your first firing neurons in your brain. And I really recommend everyone to buy um, Martin's amazing book, Thinking While Walking, while he was on the Pacific Crest Trail, which we'll also put a link in the show notes. And each chapter is a really chunky philosophical debate. If people read it, I, I, I hope they will enjoy it. You can reach me at mbunzl, mbunzl.com. And I, I welcome interchanges. You, my email is there and I occasionally post blog posts if things move me. Um, and you can follow that if you want. But I also want to thank you, Mary, for inviting me on here and for an entertaining conversation. Yeah, it was, it was really, really fun. And I really enjoyed your book. So thank you so much. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Nature Magic podcast. News this week is that the 15 acre organic meadow was cut and bailed. We leave the cut until the last possible window of good weather to allow as many seeds as possible to ripen. The hay was wilted and turned for two days to produce haylage as high moisture content is not good for equines. The belted Galloways, Belty Bottle and Pablo and the horses Toppy and Vincent were then let into the meadow to finish removing any rough grasses around the edges and in areas the contractors could not access. The cattle, horses and donkeys will probably start on the round bales around Christmas, depending on weather and the availability of grass and will continue to survive on the haylage well into April when the grass comes in again. They will use about 35 bales and the rest will be sold to another organic farm. Please subscribe and rate the podcast to help with our reach. You can now support Nature Magic through Patreon. There is a link in the show notes. Thank you.